The scripture reading, please. I will be reading uh, from the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 4, 22 through 32. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you put off falsehood and speak truthfully to, to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they might have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may, be benef but it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Uh, you may be seated. This is the word of God. You may be seated. You know, this time of year, we have a lot of people that are traveling, and uh, maybe you've noticed, uh, maybe some of the people around you have, uh, are not here this morning because they've gone on vacation or traveling or, or doing something. Remember to be praying for them and, and asking God to protect them while they're out on the road. And that is one of the blessings of the summer is that it is a time for us to be able to get away with, with, uh, with our families and with our kiddos and with our loved ones or with friends and to spend some time away from uh, the normal activities of the day to get some rest and to refresh our minds. The other good thing about this time of year is uh, not only do some of us get to, to travel and, and to have a vacation like that, but we also have people that travel in to San Antonio and in particular to this church family and are, are with us to worship and with us to, uh, to praise God. And this morning, uh, we're really blessed to have uh, a couple whom we've come to love very much. Uh, they're uh, a couple of our, our missionaries here in the United States. And uh, we want to recognize them and have them stand. Jim and Betty Smith, can we get you guys to stand and be recognized? I want you to remain standing, and Brad's going to lead us in a song. Oh, with the love of the Lord, we see in you free of our King. And all the church said, well done. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 4. God, you're good to us as we have sung, and it's not just when we're weak, but when we're strong. You remind us of your presence in such a way. You help us, Father, to remain calm and poised in this world in which 
there are so many temptations and there are so many opportunities for trouble and for pain and for hurt to come streaming into our lives. And it's your presence, Father, that marks our lives. And it's your presence, Father, through your Spirit and through your Word and through other disciples that helps us to be formed as humans ought to be formed and to live and to be in your presence in your creation. And so to this end, Father, as we study this Word this morning, we're going to ask in faith, in the name of Jesus, that you bless us with eyes at sea and ears to hear in, in such a way that these words begin to resonate and in some places, Father, to cause us to repent and in other places uh, to, to raise up and to swell up to worship and to praise, Father, for, for the very things that you have done in our life to make us live and to look more like the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. To this end, we pray with all of our heart that you bless us. In his name it is, Father, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Would you agree with the statement that's up here on the screen? That one of the easiest things you'll do all day is get ticked off at something or someone. You know, no one really debates anymore whether or not America is an angry nation. We are. Uh, there was an article that was published uh, in 2016 on the BBC News, so it's kind of an it's, it's observation of the United States, not by Americans, but by those on the other side of the Atlantic. In this article, 2016, it said there are five words or five areas that can cause Americans to get really angry. Economy, immigration, Washington, America's place in the world, and politics. The Washington Post, same year, reports that nearly one out of every ten Americans has not just an anger problem, but a severe anger problem, and on top of that, access to guns. An op-ed piece in Time magazine from last year, and I quote, By now it's hardly news that we are in the middle of what has been relentlessly dubbed the anger election. Bernie Sanders supporters are mad. Donald Trump supporters are really mad. The electorate as a whole is mad to the tune of nearly 80% of us saying we are dissatisfied or angry with the way the government is operating. The catch is that rage uncorked becomes rage indulged and rage indulged becomes rage applauded. And pretty soon anything with a gripe decides it's okay to crank the dungeon machine up to 11 if every offensive, unjust, or insulting incident turns out to be a jolt of high fructose fury mainlined straight into the brain's amygdala, what's left when there's a truly right and righteous reason to rise up in anger? And those important moments do occur. End of quote. What if... <laughs> The Washington Post statistic of nearly one out of every ten people have a severe anger issue. What if that was just applied to, to our own hometown of San Antonio, Texas? Do you know that that means that there are about 150,000 people in our city alone with a severe, not a general, but a severe anger issue? And you're on the road with them. I think one of the greatest needs around the world, not just in San Antonio, but around the world, and especially in certain parts of the world, for there to be a community of people who have their anger, along with all of their other emotional life, 
under the lordship of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you agree with that? Paul says to the disciples living in Ephesus, in your anger, do not, say it, sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still what? Angry. And do not give whom? The devil a foothold in your life. The old King Jimmy says it this way, be ye angry and sin not. In this, uh, this short little text of really three phrases, Paul gives us three things to consider. The first is this. Paul does not say that sin is always sinful, but it's something that can be corrupted. The second thing he says is that the longer that anger lives in our hearts, the more dangerous it becomes. And the final thing he says is that anger is a portal for Satan to access your life. So what we want to do is we want to delve down into what he is giving us as an understanding of the structure of anger. The first is this. Anger in itself is not wrong, but it can lead to wrong. Say these words again with me from Ephesians 4, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Let's say it again. In your anger, do not sin. Paul says there are times when you can be angry, but not sinfully so. But a quick-to-anger person is a dangerous person. You'll remember what James says in James chapter 1, verse 19. He says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become what? Angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, that great chapter on, on love, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he's describing all these things that love is, and in verse 5 he says, guess what? When it comes to love, it is not easily angered. One of the qualifications for a shepherd in the church is that he not be quick-tempered, Titus chapter 1, verse 7, or that he, the only way that he knows how to settle a dispute is with his fist, that he's pugnacious, that he's, he's easily angered. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3. Anger becomes sinful and godly when it becomes an avenue to manipulate and control people not to cross your will. Anger becomes a spiritual liability when it uses these means to protect its own agendas and to defend our own egos. Anger is by its nature a secondary emotion, which means that anger is an announcement that there's something that's going on in your life that's wrong. What pain is to the physical body, uh, anger is to the emotional life of a human. Anger is a red flag that gets our attention, that there's something going on that's wrong, that needs to be remedied and resolved and, and fixed. It may be that we're in pain, or it may be that we're frightened, or we're hurt, or we're frustrated, or we're aggravated, and that anger is a sign that there's something going on that needs to be dealt with. Now, proper anger lets us know something is wrong. It lets us know that there is a need for healing, that there's something that needs to change in order to reflect the presence of God. For instance, John chapter 11. Jesus becomes angry in front of the tomb of Lazarus, and he's angry that death has taken his friend, and that's not the way things are supposed to be in the world that he created. People are not supposed to die. And when they do, because of what has, has happened in the world with corruption, God is dishonored. And so he raises his friend from the dead, and then he himself dies on the cross so that all of his friends will never die again. In John chapter 2, Jesus becomes 
angry at what he sees happening to the temple. It's a place of prayer for all of the nations. It's become corrupted. It's become a marketplace. It's become a den of thieves. And God is being dishonored. And so he clears the moneylenders and their tables out of the place in order to reestablish prayer. Now, I want you to write this down on your outline someplace. It's, it's, it's a working definition by no way uh, close to being complete, is it? But it's, it'll, it'll help us get our mind around at least the direction that I think the Bible goes when it talks about anger. Anger is the emotion that alerts us to the need for healing and or justice. Anger is the emotion that alerts us to the need for healing and or justice. That there are things around us that need to be deconstructed and then reconstructed in order to honor God and to please God. So is there a time and a place for Christians, and for that matter all humans, to be angry? The answer is yes. Some years ago, you may remember, there was a very horrific murder that took place in our city. A well-known and beloved teacher in Alamo Heights had been murdered by the father of a student she had befriended and had helped over a period of time. And when the details of the murder came out, the city was shocked. And the more shocked it became, the more angry it became. And I was asked by, by one of the, uh, the hosts of a radio show in the afternoon here in San Antonio to, uh, to come into the studio and to talk about the city's anger. What should we do? And one of the things I remember saying on that show is that you know, anger is not a bad thing. Anger can be very, very healthy. To not be angry when someone is murdered is not a sign of health, but of dysfunctionality. But that the anger to remain healthy had to seek justice and not revenge. So anger is not sinful in itself, but it can become so if we are not watchful of it. Number two, what he tells us is don't let the anger linger. Do not let anger linger. He says in the next phrase, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. What Paul is saying right there is that there's a hard stop, emotionally speaking, to the anger that is being manifested in your life. There's a hard stop. At some point, you've got to deal with it. Don't let the sun go down on it. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Matthew 5, beginning of it, Jesus is teaching about what it means to follow Him and to be His disciple. And beginning in this really important section, in verse 21, He says, you know, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, and I'm not going to pronounce it the way it should be pronounced in Aramaic, because the word is sort of, um, it's, it's a very guttural word, and when it's pronounced correctly, it sounds like you're clearing the throat, like you're about to spit in somebody's face. Now, you can practice this at home afterwards. <laughs> but if you say this, answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Secondly, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. Now, 
in this section, it's a very interesting question to ask. Why does Jesus start this section with anger? He's going to talk about so many things. Why does he start with anger? The answer, I think, is that anger is a fundamental obstacle to living in the world as a disciple of Jesus. If your anger is sinful and ungodly, will you turn the other cheek? If your anger is sinful, will you go the second mile? If your anger is ungodly, will you give your shirt to the one who compels you to give him your coat? Jesus does something really startling, I think, to the ears of these first century listeners. He tells them that each of them and us, each of us have the seeds of our own destruction embedded in our hearts. The seed of anger, if it is watered enough and given enough time, will sprout and blossom into murder. Remember uh, Dallas Willard, I, I, I gave you this, uh, this illustration last week. That he says when it comes to human nature, you know, there are a lot of human, be- uh, human beings who are like farmers who don't believe in bugs and weeds, but only in fertilizer. And so they fertilize everything, and in the end, they end up with a lot of bugs and a lot of big weeds in their life. Anger is not a sin, but it is a path to sin. The Hebrew writer says that bitterness, which is a byproduct of the bad form of anger, can be hidden like a root in the ground, and the next thing you know, it pops up and surprises everyone. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 in the New American Standard says, See to it that no bitter root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. When there is a, 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 a mass murder that takes place in our own country, what is one of the commonplace things that happens? They discover, the media, the police, authorities discover who it is. They go to the neighborhood. They start interviewing all of the neighbors. And one of the things that is so commonplace in the stories of mass murderers is that the culprit is always described as a nice guy. He's a nice guy. He's a quiet guy. Guy that keeps his lawn mowed, house painted. The kind of guy that you want to have as a neighbor in your neighborhood. And everyone is completely shocked that he was capable of such a crime. And the reason they're shocked is that a root of bitterness or a root of anger was buried beneath the surface until it popped out. Last thing we'll say. Anger in itself is, is, is not wrong but can lead to wrong. Please, please, please do not let anger linger in your life and finally close the door of anger to the evil one. Remember the old uh, door-to-door salesman technique, you're selling um, uh, encyclopedias, selling vacuum cleaners, knock on the door, lady of the house comes to the door, she opens it up, and you begin the spiel, and she decides, no, oh, I like the vacuum cleaner I have, or we've got enough encyclopedias, or, you know, my kids can't read. And she starts to close the door, and the, the salesman has put his foot up against the door jamb so that the door closes, and he can keep talking and working hoping that maybe she'll even open the door wider to see what was going on. 
Now, the word that Paul uses here is the word foothold, which probably, in terms of the way that he's thinking, they, I don't know if they had door-to-door oil lamp salesmen in his day, but what they did have, people that were trying to get up on top of mountains. And you know how you get higher and higher and higher on a mountain? Footholds. Footholds. You get one foot in, and the next foot in, and the next thing, you're getting higher and higher and higher. And Paul says in verse 27, do not give the devil a foothold to the mountain that is your heart and life. Anger became the portal for the reality of the world to become a reality of killing. In Genesis chapter 4, after the fall of man and the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel are born into the world. And you know the story, Cain is a farmer, Abel is a rancher. They go one day to sacrifice and worship God. Cain gives what he gives, Abel gives what he gives. One offering, Cain's, is not really acceptable because it's just sort of half done in the heart. Abel's, on the other hand, is completely consumed. And five verses into Genesis 4... We read that for Cain and for his offering he had no regard, so Cain became very, say it, angry. And his countenance fell. And God sees what's going on in Cain's heart. And he says to him, among other things, he says, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Language is pretty interesting. The language is of a demon or some kind of a feral animal getting ready to pounce. And, and James, the brother of Jesus, is thinking back to this story and maybe a billion like it that have transpired since Genesis 4. And he says in James 1 verse 20, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Another way that James might say it is like this. Be aware of anger in order to beware anger. Two concluding thoughts, and we're done this morning. Jesus and Paul on anger. I want us to go back and think about verses 23 and 24. Listen to them again. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In this series, you know, we talk a lot about being game changers and that when we come into any group of, of people or any, any workplace or neighborhood place or school place or friend place, wherever it may be, the Starbucks place or, the, you know, as they say, the five bucks place, you know, anywhere that you go because of who you are as a disciple of Jesus, being a light, being like a city set on a hill, you go in and there's something that you manifest. There's something that you illustrate and demonstrate in your life. And one of the ways that happens for game changers is that they never substitute religious activity for spiritual maturity. Listen, you can grow old in the pews and never grow up. And one of the things that Jesus and Paul and every writer in the Bible talk about is the need to be mature, spiritually speaking, in order not only to reflect God and to be blessed because you're living according to God's will, but that you can be used for God's will in a world that doesn't recognize it. The prophets were just troubled over and over and over again because of the morally debauched churchgoers in Israel. And at the beginning of Isaiah, he says, you know what? Stop coming to church. Because I'm sick 
of, of the hypocrisy of people who say that they, they reflect my glory and it's only darkness. Religious activity, my friends, never camouflages nor does it fix the chinks in our spiritual maturity and efforts to live our life like the Messiah. And then number two, game changers choose a life of eye-opening love. Now this is where all of us are going to be challenged. He says in verse 25, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you'll never get out until you pay the last penny. Now, I don't know everything that he's talking about there, even though I've been thinking about it for over 35 years. But here's one of the things that I know without a shadow of a doubt he's saying. That in a just or even unjust situation where you might even be hauled into court, the fact that you have a legal adversary is not a block to the eye-opening love that you are to show that individual in trying to reconcile. You will say that, well, that sounds absolutely stupid. I'll end with this. You know, there came a day when the most sensitive man who ever lived on the planet was betrayed by a kiss. How unjust is that and hypocritical is that? And they dragged this man without blemish, into the kangaroo court of, of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation. And after that, they dragged him down the valley and up into the fortress Antonia, where he was tried by a foreign power, and he was crucified. The most awful way to die in the ancient world. But in being condemned to die... What did he accomplish? He made us more than friends. He made us his brothers. That's why I say it's an eye-opening challenge to an eye-opening love. We walk as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth on this planet. And in the tremendous, nearly unbelievable things that he accomplished through love in his life, we do too. And we get angry at the things that he gets angry at, and we love those that he loved. And that's how you change the world. When those kind of people begin to infiltrate every corner of, of community. Brad's going to lead us in a, a song of praise right now. There may be some ways that, uh, that we can talk to you or bless you or pray for you or show you how you become a child of God in this life and a, and a brother to the Christ and he becomes the Lord of your life. And not only do you live as light and not only do you live like this city that is set on the hill because of all of the changes that he's bringing into your life, but you know what happens? You yourself begin to be blessed as well with a joy and a peace and, all, and relationships that you cannot even imagine.
And if that sounds like you this morning, our shepherds are going to be right down here at the front before me. Come down during the singing of this song and let them know what's on your heart. Let's stand and let's praise God together. Hear the holy roar.